This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Steven, how are you, my friend? Well, I'm not uh, jet-lagged. Can that even happen on uh, something that's in the same time zone? <laughs> how was Sheep yeah. Show? Well, I, I am not jet-lagged, but I am bloody tired. Um, sheep Show was, Sheep Week was Sheep Week, man. Oh, um, yeah. You've been there. It was off the hook. It mm-hmm. was, you know, it was a bit wonky with COVID. Like, things weren't oh, yeah. normal, but there was so much energy, man. Like, and, and you know, everyone was amped. They were happy to be there. Good. Um, you know, we're seeing friends we haven't seen for two years. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, it was, it was just a fun week. Uh, we made rate, made a lot of money for wild sheep. There's so many passionate yeah. conservationists out there that want to help the resource. And, uh, we've seen it first and foremost, that sheep, we, the people were there, they opened their wallets, they supported, mm-hmm. uh, the foundation and, and it was really, really exciting. Yeah. I saw that there was some records set, like what did Oregon go for something like 320 or something? Yeah, it was like, big holy. Dollars. Yeah, it was, and it's important to remember and recognize that every single dollar from those tags goes right back to the resource. There's, there's no uh, administrative fees or anything like that. It's just, it, it's out of government hands. It goes right back onto the ground. So, those people that are buying those tags, we're truly thankful for because, uh, as I said, it's directly to to the sheep and the, and the habitat that they inhabit. So, it's a great time and probably a good thing that I didn't get down there, right? Because my itinerary coming back, I would be stuck in Salt Lake City. They had me going Reno, Salt Lake City, Seattle, Vancouver, PG. And uh, I got the itinerary sent to me after I should have landed in Salt Lake City and said every single uh, flight from there would have been canceled on me. So who knows? I'd probably still be living in the airport. What's that uh, movie there where the guy's stuck in the airport for like 15 years? That would just terminal. Yeah. Right. That'd be, yeah, yeah, that'd be the the story of my life, right? I'd be trying to record a podcast and edit it from, uh, from my new home in the airport, but yeah, on to bigger and better things. So that's awesome. I'm glad you had a good time. Looked like a good time. Yeah, no, it was a great show. So um, on that note, um, one of uh, the awards uh, on the awards night on the Saturday night is the Frank Galata Award, mm-hmm. the Outstanding Outfitter Award. And um, this year it was very cool. A good friend of ours, a great supporter of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, um, the RT family, Jacob RT, was on the stage. He was receiving the award. Sierra L. Alamo won the Frank Galata Award this year. That's uh, amazing. For those that don't know we have our uh wsr or wild sheep raffles and there's a desert bighorn with sierra l elmo on there so you're going to be whoever wins that raffle um to go on a desert bighorn sheep hunt is going to be hunting with the frank galata award winner from this year um the highest uh, recognition you can get um from the wild sheep family for the guide outfitters and uh, just a congr- huge congratulations mm-hmm. to the rt family to jacob for supporting us 
Um, he's been a great supporter of the Wild Sheep Foundation and just a, a, a really reputable outfitter and uh, tons of respect. So um, there's still a few tickets left on our WSR for the Desert Bighorn. Um, I think we're about that three-quarter mark sold out. Mm-hmm. So it will sell out if you're thinking about getting some tickets. Um, and again, those tag prices went up oh, this, yeah. this year with him winning that award, right? People yeah. people are, are going to be wanting those tags even more so now that he's won that award and got the, you know, he's always had that reputation, but now he's got the award to back him up, right? So. Uh, oh, absolutely. And they always put down some big, big sheep. <laughs> like that's, if, if you want a shot at a, a a book desert ram, there's there's the guys to go with. So yeah, as Kyle said, we're three quarters sold out and we don't expect that to last to uh, the draw date uh, like uh, any of our other raffles. So yeah, now's your chance to hunt with an award-winning uh, sheep hunter. Cool. So this is episode 58. Um, we're with Dr. Clayton Lamb. Uh, Clayton, just you know, this is a, a great podcast. I was just mesmerized that you know I listened to him on the Hunter Conservationist podcast a while back, and uh, talking about grizzly bears, and I learned so much. I was just the grizzly bear ecology and how they function in the wild and the importance of habitat, and uh, it just was fascinating to me. And he didn't disappoint. So we really dive into the caribou issue here, um, and just some you know uh, science at its finest, right? Hearing it from you know a guy that's just talking about science, he. He, he really delves into the issue and why it's important. We talk about caribou and then we get on region four and we talk lots about bighorns in region four. We talk about this LEH issue that we've been dealing with, with the Wild Sheep Society BC and our members have weighed in and, and, you know, why we're raising concerns about, you know, the LEH lever and nothing else being pulled. And we talk about building a bridge. And um, so it's really interesting. So, you know, when you listen to this podcast, 58, do us a favor, get back to us and, uh, you know, Clayton talks about, you know, a wildlife overpass and the benefits. They lost 15 sheep this year. Um, I think he figured it was maybe a little bit less than that, but they they know of uh, about 15 bighorn sheep that were killed or, or possibly died due to wildlife collisions with cars. So uh, let us know what you think. Um, you know, we're pretty concerned about this. We want to we wanna see wildlife populations, especially bighorn sheep, restored in the uh, Kootenays. And, you know, we're pulling this LEH lever, which you know, which Clayton talks about, he says, you know, the bighorn management plan says that that's not going to fix the issue. Right. And so again, here we are a single lever and nothing else being done. Let us know, let us know what you think. Um, you know, should we be advocating for wildlife uh, overpasses so that these sheep can cross the highway safely? Um, and that's a really classic example where he says it will actually work. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's also important to note that, uh, Clayton is a longtime hunter. Uh, it's he's not just speaking from uh, uh, the, the the scientific view of uh, hunting is bad. He he will look at it holistically, objectively, and we get into that uh, a little bit there. As uh, he he speaks about wolves and caribou, and he actually specialized in grizzly bears uh, for a long long part of his career. So, yeah, he's uh, he's definitely on our side, and everything he speaks about is one hundred percent objective. So, uh, yeah, it's I really enjoyed this episode and getting to chat with him again. Cool. So, uh, email to communications at wildsheepsociety.com. Uh, let us know. Uh, we have the winner, the Meligator answer um, from last episode uh, with Laura. Um, we'll give, we'll be sending out some swag to the winner there. 
If you looked up the words conservation superhero in the dictionary, you would see a picture of our friend Omer from Precision Optics, a tireless donor and supporter of all things wild sheep. Precision Optics, located in Quinell, British Columbia, truly stands alone in the high alpine. From optics to rifles to outdoor gear and a knowledge that cannot be surpassed, toss in that killer smile and you have a total conservation package. Precision Optics, we are truly thankful for the support you show us every step of the way. Find them online at precisionoptics.net or in Aroma Foods, located just off Highway 97 in Quinell, BC. Good morning, Clayton. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really stoked. So uh, before we got going here, you said you're coming to us from the uh, the Kootenays? Yeah, I'm in uh, Jaffrey, BC, uh, nested in the Kootenays here. It's a snowy, wintry day, but pleased to be talking to you guys. Awesome. Appreciate it. So you've been doing a ton of great work across the landscape. Uh, as I mentioned to you, we you know, I listened to you on the Hunter Conservationist podcast. Uh, great article there about the work you're doing with grizzly bear. And it was really fascinating. I learned so much about uh, grizzlies. I had no idea about just there's so much uh, so much unknowns for, for me and, and I think a lot of people too. So really appreciate your and I guess that was your PhD study was on grizzly bears. Um, is that correct? Yeah, I, I did a, a PhD on kind of grizzly bear ecology and um, the challenges to coexisting with them across sort of Western North America and obviously focusing on the hub of where grizzly bears are in, in British Columbia. So yeah, lots of, got to see a lot of cool places in BC that I actually hadn't seen even while out hunting, um, you know, places like flying into the, the Skeena and um, and the Stikine and some pretty, pretty cool places, pretty wild places. Okay, so I'm going to go down a dirt road here, but um, did you have any close calls with grizzlies? Was there any like, holy crap, I'm in trouble here? Or any interesting stories around that or was it pretty benign? I mean, all of my work experiences have been all really safe and, and somewhat pretty casual. We we have good uh, veterinary oversight and we have really good drug. And I mean, we it's incredibly safe handling bears. All of my bad or challenging or stressful bear experiences have been out hunting or doing things like that not while I have my work cap on um so you know when I was a kid uh, hunting in the in the Granby there kind of above Rock Creek I was charged by a grizzly bear and I I grew up in in Chilliwack so in the lower mainland and no grizzly bears and not that grizzly savvy when I was a kid and we got charged by this big bear that was standing right in front of our truck when we were coming back from a hike and that certainly changed my tune and it I was you know then immediately thought that bears were out to get us and you know they were the the worst thing and now of course after doing this for a long time i have a a bit different view after um you know chasing bears around for the better part of a decade now right on so okay now just now that we're down the dirt road i'll just keep going but um with regards to um when you're out hunting on the landscape if you're out there with a rifle are you always carrying bear spray because there's the whole bear spray no bear spray debate um I, and i don't do it but every time i don't do it i'm like damn i wish i had bear spray <laughs> i always have bear spray and i um i really changed my opinion on it too as i started you know working professionally uh doing this and always being in bear country and and actively attracting bears to my location for a living and um you know a big one is uh, I used to carry a defender because that was sort of growing up in a hunting type community and up hunting moose in the north. It was always sort of said you had to have a defender in your tent and, you know, keep that shotgun close. And so I wanted to have a defender as I was working on these dangerous bears. And 
After a while, I noticed the defender was always in my truck or leaning against a tree or it was too heavy. And I basically never had it in my hand to actually do any good. So, you know, I obviously when I'm hunting, I have a rifle and then I do carry the bear spray because it's on my hip all the time, whereas my rifle is strapped in my back or it's somewhere else. So I think it's good. And, it, you know, I always try to tell people that if there is a bear, say, charging across a football field from you, I would much prefer to have a firearm because you have time and distance and, you know, it'd probably be more effective. But that's never going to happen to you. Like, you're never going to have that sort of an event where you have hundreds of meters to think and, you know, do something calmly. It's going to be a, a 10 foot stressful last last second, like no idea it's coming type thing. And gun's not that useful in that case. Um, you know, at least with my marksmanship, I'll say, I mean, others might be better, but the bear spray is pretty nice. It's like, you know, just kind of a, a shotgun spray and you can get that bear to turn around. In general, they don't really want to, they don't want anything to do with you, right? Like that's why people mostly get mauled and not killed is because a bear comes in, gives you a couple of whacks and it, it does incredible damage to us because we're sort of these thin skinned, unfurred creatures. But you know, the bear really just wants to tell you to get out of there. And that's why the bear turns and turns tail and runs away. So yeah, I carry bear spray and I think it's a good sort of um, plan A in a lot of cases. And you have your firearm there if the situation is, is amenable to that. Right on. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to segue there, but we were on the subject. So um, yeah, that uh, we got more important things to talk about, but always uh, an interesting debate. I always love, you know, hearing those debates online about, you know, and, and I'm with you. I, I totally think that we should do it, but I never do. So I gotta, I gotta get <laughs> better. Get at one. Yeah, no, you're absolutely, I actually, ironically, I have one, but I got to do a better job of carrying it. So, um, okay, cool. So Clayton, uh, obviously you've done a ton of work in academia. You've done a ton of studies um, and I'm not going to do it justice trying to explain who you are. So um, do you mind just giving us a little background on sort of your professional uh, biography and and maybe where you went to school, your studies, and and what you've been involved in, and then we'll we'll go on from there, please. Yeah, I, I, so from the highest level, I'm a I'm a wildlife scientist, and I I work on applied problems throughout Western North America, and I, I'd say my specialty is really working on those on the ground solutions, you know, trying to make a difference on the land and. And then the science aspect comes in in trying to measure outcomes. So, of course, there's no real point in um, investing money and effort and political and social capital and things that aren't working for wildlife. So that's kind of my role is to help um, along with, you know, of course, folks like uh, you guys to stimulate changes on the ground and to, you know, do things like um, prescribe burns and conflict mitigation and, you know, differing levels of predator, predator control at times for caribou. And then my job is to measure, is that working? Is that providing the, the benefits to wildlife that we expect? I mean, I think there's a sense in BC that hunters are, are pretty frustrated that a lot of things aren't happening. You know, we're kind of watching wildlife decline and the landscape change and wildlife sort of in the back seat. And when we do get something done and we can, you know, get the, um, the political will to make change, I'm sort of there to, to make sure that what we do get done is going to work and provide the benefits to wildlife that, that we expect and we hope. So that's sort of my job. And I, I do that in a number of places um, and a number of species and sort of systems. So uh, a, a big one is in the Elk Valley here in the East Kootenays, working on 
grizzly bear conflicts and kind of coexistence. So uh, the Elk Valley is a really unique place in that it has an abundance of grizzly bears. There's grizzly bears that walk by all of our houses all the time. I mean, we live right in grizzly bear country. It's a very productive landscape that has grizzly bears and people nested, you know, right in the same valley. And uh, of course, it's a pretty busy place. I mean, we have uh, an incredible recreation destination. We have thousands of people mountain biking and um, hiking and floating the Elk River. And then we have uh, resource extraction from uh, five large open pit coal mines and um, logging. So it's a busy place. It's a tourist destination. It's an industry hub and there's a railway and a highway going through. So it, it it's a unique place to uh, study wildlife because it kind of has all those things that are likely pretty challenging for wildlife to navigate, but also has a pretty high abundance of, of wildlife, at least right now. So my job is to kind of understand um, what aspects of that is, is are working for wildlife and what are not, and to make sure that we kind of safeguard the, the pretty special biodiversity we have in the Elk Valley, which, which if folks don't know, I mean, the Elk Valley has uh, bighorn sheep, pretty abundant bighorn sheep populations, uh, goats, elk, deer, grizzly bears. It has all the big, big species basically except caribou and bison. So it's, you know, it's one of the um, biodiversity hotspots in British Columbia. So that's, that's kind of one of the hubs uh, where I work on um, grizzly bears, but a number of other species, including, uh, you know, bighorn sheep ecology, uh, elk migrations, and especially focusing on reducing uh, roadkill. So kind of looking at those transportation corridors and, and looking at how we can basically make that landscape work better for, for people and wildlife, which is, I, I think, an important thing that we should talk about, kind of those, those win-win situations where we can make people and wildlife safer. And then I'd say the, the other component of my work is um, caribou ecology. So kind of zooming up to the north in, in uh, sort of central BC in the central Rockies, I work on um, recovering caribou populations with West Moberly First Nations and Soto First Nations, which is a pretty exciting project. It's, it's one of the only places where uh, caribou have almost been extirpated. So there's about 36 caribou there in 2013. And through some really effective and courageous leadership from West Moberly and Soto First Nations, they've almost tripled that caribou herd. So, you know, when we think of caribou in BC and Western North America, it's kind of this really unfortunate, you know, every couple of years is another herd that's extirpated. And, and this herd, which is called the Klinziza, this would have been one of those, you know, news stories that kind of gets lost in the background and other sort of failure on the land, but not, not accepting that fate, these nations really turn these caribou around through um, uh, reductions in, in predator abundance and then maternal penning. So bringing those females in and, and looking after their young for a short period. So that's, that's kind of, that's what I do. Those two spots are kind of the, the main focus of my work. Cool. There's a lot to jump into there. Um, but we're on the caribou subject now. So let's just go there. So <laughs> Um, you know, the, the caribou thing is so divisive, right? We've seen all these, you know, there's obviously a lawsuit, uh, provincially against, uh, predator management. Um, we've got an iconic species like, uh, caribou, um, you know, on the, the threat of extirpation. And then we've got, uh, you know, wolf populations are, are strong in British Columbia. They have a very high fecundity. They, they're, you know, high re reproductive rate. 
I've heard kind of the advocates for the the lawsuit and, and ending predator management to say that, well, caribou are evolutionary. They're going to die. They're basically dumb animals and just let nature take its course. Um, you know, I, I, I struggle with that. Um, can, can you kind of come at us from the science angle on how you guys approach this? Um, you know, there's the argument that, you know, caribou are, uh, or, or sorry, wolf management, you know, you got to keep killing them. So, you know, it doesn't really make sense. It's really expensive. Um, and so, you know, there, it, it's a really complex issue and I know we're not going to do it justice in 10 minutes, but, you know, kind of coming from your experience on the ground there and being involved in this, um, kind of give us an overview on it and your guys' approach to it. And, um, yeah, it's cool. We've seen this population triple, um, obviously a very small population. There's a lot more work to be done, but is the juice worth the squeeze? Um, you know, that's, you know, obviously our listeners, most of them believe that I believe it, but, uh, you know, we get the other side of it. So I'd like to hear your perspective kind of from the science end of things, if you could for us, Clayton. Yeah, you bet. I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a very complicated and sticky issue and charged from many sides. Uh, from the, from the wolf side, I'd say that it's one of those things where, uh, there's folks that, uh, their opinions and, and views span a pretty broad gradient. And I'd say that folks on either end of the spectrum are often, um, you know, they do a bit of harm to the, the greater good of those caribou in that, you know, folks that think that every wolf should die. I don't really think that's the kind of thing that, you know, science would support or, you know, and generally kind of our, or at least my values as a, you know, a person of British Columbia and a hunter. But, you know, then of course, the folks that think that every single wolf should, you know, uh, should live and they should uh, proliferate across the landscape, that also creates unique challenges for folks, you know, like ranchers and for, of course, these caribou, which, you know, I think, as we all know, is not the caribou or the wolves fault. Um, really, the, the challenge with caribou is that we've changed these landscapes so dramatically because of basically industrialization of extraction on the landscape. And especially in the Klinziza, it's it's not unlike the Elk Valley in that it has sort of the perfect storm of problems. So basically, uh, uh, the um, uh, Williston Reservoir cut off migration for these caribou on two sides. So on the west and the northern side. So the, the arm of the Williston comes around to the north and the main Williston's on the west side. So that was kind of the first or one of the many first cuts for these caribou in the 60s when that was flooded. Uh, elders basically watched caribou try to uh, go across the dam, which was now uh, flooded and, and fall through the ice and die as they tried to do their migration. And then, you know, logging and um, oil and gas and just a lot of changes on the landscape have changed the predator-prey dynamics in such a major way on these landscapes. And basically logging and, um, and the linear features that come with that, roads and then uh, oil and gas um, exploration, basically create a situation where wolves can move uh, faster and more efficiently across the landscape. And it creates better food for deer and moose and elk, and that that brings in more wolves. So the basic story is that these caribou used to live in fairly unproductive, low quality from a from a deer or elk's perspective habitats, and there was few few predators, and that's how they made their living. And and, and that is kind of why folks think they're dumb, is because they they're sort of these sort of lovely creatures that are a bit predator naive because. They lived in sort of this uh, low productivity landscape where they didn't have to 
run from predators all the time. They're not like elk out on the front range of Yellowstone that are, you know, living with wolves all day long. So, you know, that's, that's sort of where the balance got disrupted. And then the question is whether we, you know, it's our role as humans to sort of uh, rejig that balance, um, especially given that, you know, we could, we could try to repair that landscape, but that is going to take an incredible amount of time. You know, you could regrow those, uh, those trees and, and fix those, uh, those roadways, but that's going to take 30 to 80 years to turn that back into, you know, older growth uh, forests. So that's sort of where this predator management thing comes in. And, and, and really it, it's a, it's an issue that there are, uh, the wolf density is too high in these caribou ranges to sustain these caribou populations. And the wolves aren't even really targeting the caribou per se. The wolves are there for other reasons to, you know, eat the high abundance of deer and moose and elk. And they basically just bump into these caribou and eat them um, uh, sort of on the side opportunistically. And even that predation rate basically is unsustainable for these caribou populations. And and we, we do see pretty strong evidence that when you reduce the wolf numbers, these caribou populations grow. They're definitely limited by um, wolf predation. But, you know, there's I think there's two things. We always have to be clear that this, you know, as I said before, this is not a wolf or a caribou popu- uh, issue per se. It's a landscape issue. It's a habitat mm-hmm. disturbance caused by us issue. So that's the root of the issue that we really have to keep our eyes on. And and then I think the duration is uh, of the the predator control is what really starts to uh, bother folks. And and I think the way that I see it professionally is basically if we're doing predator control and there's not plans to restore that habitat, at some point it becomes also sort of unviable. Mm-hmm. You know, it it does become just a short term fix that uh, is actually forever, which I don't think is very. Um, viable or or supported by british Columbians, so i i think the way to do it is the the goal of the predator reductions or other things like maternal penning is to give these caribou a bridge until they can basically uh start to sustain themselves on a recovered landscape which means that you have to very aggressively start recovering habitat and changing our fundamental relationship with how we manage those ranges so it's it's an it's a it's a successful way to to bridge those caribou. There's no question. And if we don't, those populations, a lot of them will go to zero. We will lose those caribou, but mm-hmm. it's it's not really one or the other, predator control or habitat restoration. They really have to be coupled or we are sort of wasting our time as well. Yeah, I, I'm up in Prince George and even as short as three years ago, I'd go out for uh, a hunt and see wolf sign, wolf tracks everywhere, no moose. And the last couple of years, all I am seeing now is moose and wolf reduction. It's you're, you're, you're seeing it within one, two years of uh, these measures being taken. It's, it's great. We're starting to see that balance come back. But as you said, we we can't do one without the other. I've always equated it to somebody's got a gaping wound and you're holding pressure on there while somebody tries to stitch that and stop the bleeding, right? That's that's what we're doing now with this. We we want that wound to close and we have to work together with a team to, to get it there. And it's I, I'm seeing firsthand results of it. Like we're we're seeing moose in numbers that you didn't normally see them. Like even coming back from back east, about an hour east of Prince George the other day, we we saw 
three moose on the side of the road in 30 40k that that's unheard of it's 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 great and the the results are working and as you said it's balance and we need to to get that balance and as uh as a hunter and a trapper i don't want to see wolves extinct no way they're they're amazing creatures but we do need to uh get those numbers right yeah so clayton i got a sorry i got i got a question for you from uh evolutionary perspective obviously animals change it takes time it takes years nothing happens quickly so obviously there's the habitat piece there's no question about that but um you know there's i think it was you that shared this with me that you know grizzly bears used to be on the prairies they were abundant on the prairies and then because of you know uh overly hunting and uh, pressure by you know first nations and then eventually the white men and eventually it was they were you know now they're mountain animals right we don't see them on the prairies anymore um, from an evolutionary perspective will that help ha- happen with caribou over a few decades will we see them changing and adapting to wolves and, and being able to self-sustain if we can get them there or is it one of those things that no the habitat's the only solution in this case um, or you know with the the new landscape can they survive in this with time and adaptation that's a, it's a good question. I mean, if there was some sort of uh, adaptive variation that, you know, there was this caribou out there that, you know, figured out how to avoid wolves and live up at high elevation. I mean, it, it in theory, then yes, I mean, that caribou would do better, uh, survive better, have more young. And if that was a heritable gene, it would create more of those caribou. I think the chance of that happening is so low. Uh, because evolution happens on such a long time scale, you have to have that, you know, perfect caribou there to, to sort of survive and spread those genes. And whether we have that sort of heritable gene and heritable caribou sitting there waiting for us is unknown. And it, these caribou, I mean, because they get so small, they also die by the craziest things. Like they die in avalanches, like seven go down in an avalanche, which of course, uh, you know, of course, there could be selected for uh, this cautious caribou that avoids avalanche train. But I mean, y- you just never know when you're going to lose one of these things either. And so I don't think that that's a uh, that's unlikely to save us in this situation. Um, unfortunately, I, I think. Cool. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, so the work's being done on the ground. You've been involved in it. Um, you know, what's going to take on the habitat piece then? Like, and I know this is a drum we beat and it, it's going to come down to money and, and restricting industry and a whole bunch of other things. So is this attainable or are we, are we, you know, what does that look like from your perspective? And, you know, I'm not trying to throw any government under the bus to just simply, you know, can we do this and what's it going to take? Yeah. Um, let me answer that in a second. I also want to speak to Steve's point about the, uh, the moose increases. And I think, I think that's such a, a good point, and it, it, it reminds me how the way we manage wildlife is this sort of uh, unidimensional like lever, and it, uh, it reminds me that the pendulum is always swinging one way or the other, and I could see a future not too far from now where uh, that becomes a problem, right, where there's so many moose that then ICBC has a problem with collisions, or you know, those moose start to eat themselves out of house and home because they're not predator regulated. And, you know, then the range is depleted for moose for some time. And so 
I, I do think that's where we as sort of Western scientists and as sort of, you know, Western management agencies, we often fail sort of uh, the land and these wildlife in pulling one single lever and, and sort of tuning the dial in one dimension. And there's there's some real risks there, especially um, because of the the basically with wolf reductions right now, as you say, there's that lawsuit and it, it could work for those moose for some time. And, you know, it'd be great if hunters can go out and harvest those moose and, and it might work for some time. But you could also imagine a situation where if moose density becomes five times greater than it was, and all of a sudden that, that lawsuit is successful and we, you know, the province of BC can no longer reduce wolf density, those wolves will come back in droves to this hyperabundance of moose. And that will spell disaster for those caribou. So, you know, I, I, it, it's sort of um, folks that I work with uh, up, in, up in the piece, their uh, indigenous land stewards are always reminding us that we need to think of these things more holistically and not pull one lever at a time. And I think, you know, I, I, I think we'll see something like that happen here in that uh, it, it could be non-ideal if we don't sort of think of the consequences of those high densities of moose as well, even though it, it, it's good right now for us. And yeah, I'll, so yeah. about the, the habitat restoration, I mean, I, I think... The majority of the work is focused on, uh, well, two things. I guess we need to make sure that when we're investing money in habitat restoration, it's not one of these shell games where, say, you, you, know, you spend a million bucks in one drainage to make it caribou habitat, but simultaneously the neighboring drainage, which was wild, is being logged. So that is essentially just a waste of time because you spent a million bucks to get right back where you were. And whether the volume of timber that came out of the neighboring drainage was even worth that investment is sometimes uncertain. Um, so that's, that's a big one. And that is a challenge, as, as you can imagine. That, that has real consequences for the harvestable land base of timber and for people and communities and jobs. And one thing I'd, I'd point out that is, is constantly conflated is sort of the, the downturn in the, the abundance of uh, available wood and caribou conservation. And one thing that we know, even without caribou, is that the availability of, of wood in BC, of, of standing timber, is going down through time. So we basically cut all of the available old growth. And now we're kind of in this system where we're on this sort of tree farm system now. There's not just this standing crop of, you know, 100 to 500 year old trees that we can just go cut now we have to wait for them to regrow in pretty well every part of the province except you know a few percent where it is old growth so that means now we are on this kind of fixed cap of what we can cut where it was less capped when we were still cutting old growth and then this huge cut of pine beetle which was you know above what is sustainable of course if we can't keep that going we were basically liquidating that pine beetle wood while it was available but we created this um uh, this idea that that was how we could cut for a long time. And basically with, with no caribou conservation, we knew that the availability of timber was going to decline dramatically in BC and mills were going to close. And so there, there was a future of some degree of sunsetting for that, that forestry industry. But 
then of course I, I do feel like caribou kind of gets thrown under the bus and be like, this is all because of the caribou instead of the honest conversations that we knew this was coming for a long time. So yeah, that's just sort of the first thing to point that out. And then really the focus of restoration is on the roads in a lot of ways. It's not very economical to try to speed up a, a clear cut regrowing. There's already uh, legal mandates to plant clear cuts. So they they are restored. I mean, forestry in BC is a, is a sustainable, uh, somewhat green industry that, uh, of course, is not, um, that is replaceable. So that's already happening. It's, it's restored all the time. And then unrestored, of course, that's sort of the, the cycle, but in it, unrestoring it through clear cutting would not work that well for caribou. But the focus is on the roads and those linear features and well pads. And that basically is a pretty intensive uh, job because it it requires an excavator to rip up pretty hard packed and, and well-made roads, which those roads, if, if folks don't know, uh, we, the people of BC, own all or most of the forestry roads in British Columbia. Like we pay for them. So they are subsidized roads. They're, they're not owned by the forestry company. We as taxpayers pay for those roads. And so in some ways we, you know, both uh, we own some of the access that they provide, but also if, if folks are not keen on the level of road densities and, and what they do for negative consequences to wildlife, I mean, people should speak up and, and talk to the government about that because we are actively subsidizing those roads all the time. So that's that's the focus of the restoration is to reduce the road density and then let those uh, clear cuts basically regrow on their own. But that's it's a long time, as you can imagine. And it, it would be a long time if we restored everything today, like if we could get rid of all those roads. But in reality, we're not actually even restoring that many kilometers of roads a year. We're not getting that serious about habitat restoration for caribou in BC yet. So it. The landscape of having like this restored caribou habitat is a long ways out, if we're being honest. You know, we got this scenario where, okay, the industry is a tough one, right? You, you know, you've got a uh, viable industry in BC. They're making money. There's, uh, you know, people's food is on the table. And if you're going to take their food away from the table, you're, you know, it's not, it's not good for votes. It's not good for, it's not good for the families. So I get that argument, but this road restoration business, um, that's something we can do. And, you know, there are abandoned areas and, you know, oil and gas and, and the logging industry. So, you know, why aren't we investing that money? Why is the government reticent to do that? I'm a, a little bit, uh, is it too expensive? They're not willing to put the effort in. I'm, um, I'm curious about that. And then the other side of it is, you know, isn't that something you can put back on the industry? Um, shouldn't the industry be a bit more uh, accountable there? And, the government, you know, you said we own those roads. Well, you know, we're allowing someone to put those roads in and, and you know, profit off them. Should they not be more accountable in terms of, and I know this is a huge discussion and we're not going to solve the, the the road issue today, but, um, you know, why aren't we doing more? Why isn't the government more proactive with regards to this? I guess I don't know. What, uh, not a very satisfying answer, but it uh, it's kind of one of these status quo type biases that it's it's the way we've always done it and changing policy is hard and 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 it's hard in that an entire forestry sector which is massive in British Columbia has been set up with these conditions and these levels of of subsidy that would require a change in business and operations and models and of course that's when you know those 
pretty powerful companies get a hold of the upper level politicians and these things kind of stop. And I and it's not my area of expertise to say whether it could be viable if, you know, they did restore all those roads. I mean, that's that sort of a business decision that is a bit outside my zone. But I do know that that level of roads is not working for British for wildlife in British Columbia. And we're going to have to deal with that at some point. And a big one is that a lot of these rules and regulations and policies that we have trouble with today were actually brought in in it with good intentions at one time. I mean, British Columbia was a a big, expansive place that was really hard to access. I mean, even today with our million kilometers of road, which would basically wrap around the earth 36 times, it, it still seems like it's hard to get into places. I mean, I you hunt sheep up in up in the north, you hunt stone sheep, you can walk for like 200 kilometers without touching a road between the two highways. I mean, it's still a lot of wild place. But now because of all of that roading, which was, you know, the goal was to open up BC and create, you know, access to economically viable resources. And that was in the interest of the the settlers, at least, uh, of British Columbia. It, it, it was probably a beneficial policy for the the folks that that made that that policy early in the days when access was so limiting but you know now where we have these situations where there's basically a road going up one side of a drainage and a second one going down the other side and parallel roads and it's just chaos and and too many roads we're kind of at this tipping point where they're not really serving us for greatly uh beneficial access per se in a lot of places and the detriment of that degree of road density we're really starting to feel it on the wildlife population so that's kind of where we need to think about novel ways to to address this issue and even just last week a paper came out from government scientists saying that there was too many roads in caribou habitat and they were the main issue and they were recommending no more roading and of course there i think a better answer is those roads need to be reduced i mean they don't want them they could say don't make it worse, but it's pretty clear that the current level of roads is not working for those caribou. So we actually have to actively reduce them. But, you know, even from within government, they're kind of saying like, this is not working. So I, I do think we're at a period of change, but the the Forest and Range Practice Act, FERPA they call it, was just sort of renegotiated and it didn't really come back with really strong road language. There's there's some better work on restoration, but it's not a clear mechanism that roads will be restored. So I don't think we're quite there. So that's the interesting thing. You know, we've got caribou species at risk now and the federal government's involved. Uh, provincially, you know, the government wasn't doing what they needed to manage the species. So the fred- federally they've stepped in now. So, you know, is that something, you know, they've identified the predator uh, piece and they're working on that. But is that something where they step in and say, okay, well, you know, the, the federal government starts mandating some of these road uh, restoration projects and that sort of stuff, but obviously they're not going there just yet. So, And I, I think that that might happen. I mean, caribou are really unique in that they are, uh, you know, they're a threatened species under uh, Species at Risk Act, but they're endangered under COSIWIC, which is basically this body that recommends what should be listed or not. So there's kind of this gap in even listing them as endangered because that would... Um, probably be not very convenient for Canada. But, you know, I do think that because they are listed on the Species at Risk Act, there are actual things that have to happen legally. It's unlike 
say, a declining bighorn sheep population where we as uh, the science community and as hunters can say, this is not acceptable. We don't like this. And uh, folks can do something about it in government or not. They're, they're not necessarily legally mandated, whereas it is different with caribou. I mean, they have legal protection and their, ha- their habitat has legal protection. So, uh, you know, I do think that we'll start heading that way. Um, it's certainly a well-studied and well-documented issue. I, it's not as if Sarah, the Species at Risk Act, has saved these caribou either, though, right? Like, either even under this federal legislation, they are being extirpated annually. So it, it, it really speaks to the role that people have, you know, and, and groups like uh, Wild Sheep Society and just people that care about the land. I mean, if the people of BC told politicians that they're upset about the road density, the road density would be changed, but it's just not a hot button item for people, as you can imagine it. I think I probably think about it as much as, you know, entire cities of people elsewhere in the province. So, you know, um, basically it's one of these these issues that uh, we can't really rely on, even though my job is to produce evidence and science, it we can't always rely on the best available science and, and evidence to actually make things happen. I mean, we know what to do in a lot of wildlife issues, but there's just not always political will because, and for very real reasons that some of these things have compromises. They're not win-win situations and there's sort of losers in some of these situations. And those folks might be people's jobs or tourism or other things that basically end up being less valued than what you want done. And so, or sorry, or more valued than what you want done. And it just doesn't get done. So that is really where the, you know, the voice of organized groups like you guys and and lots of folks that speak for wildlife actually makes a real difference. I mean, I kind of sit on the create evidence side and there's a lot of really um, skilled and keen biologists that sit on the, the government side. And I, there's a lot of times where we're speaking the same language, but the sort of politicians are then at another level and they need to say, okay, it's time to act. And then all of us go to work and work together. But there's the system is not really set up to work from me straight to government to an action, even though, you know, when I did my undergrad, they teach you this really smooth, clean cycle of how like you do science and it changes the world. And that is unfortunately not how it works. I mean, we see that with COVID and all kinds of aspects of our life that it, there's a lot of other dimensions that uh, change whether things happen or not. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. You shut down an industry or severely impact an industry where people's life livelihoods at stake. It's going to have a significant impact on your votes when you when it comes to the next election. Um, so yeah, it's it's very clear where you know these you know it's job preservation too with with regards to our political community. They don't always do what's best for us as a community collectively. They might you know that <laughs> they look. They're looking at it in, in a much different lens than, yeah, just wildlife. So, in, um, yeah, we've said that very thing before, though, Kyle. That it, as as Clayton oh, just oh, just touched on that. Just the door one second. Yeah, the the sure. voice the voice of the people can uh, enact positive change, right? And we see it when sure. it comes to wildlife, and Clayton says it can happen when it comes to, to road management as well, right? We speak up, we get loud enough, things can change. And elected officials, ultimately, we're the ones that hire them and fire them. And we get loud enough, things will change. And 
it's it's good to to hear it from the scientific community as well, not just uh, people like me who uh, bitch and complain, right? An example. Um, so, and it, I mean, it's not that serving to me as a somebody that you know produces information. But I'll give you an example where all of these reports and you know meetings don't go a long ways, and the um, BC's interest in cumulative effects. So basically all the different things that come together that create problems on the land. Like we can't just think about roads or we can't just think about climate change or it's all of these things that create the problem, death by a thousand cuts. And, and I think that's a, it's a useful way to think about challenges in BC and to pilot it, they started in the Elk Valley and, you know, obviously a place near and dear to my heart. But as I, I tried to impress upon you earlier, it's, it's a pretty interesting place with a lot of biodiversity and a lot of, challenges. So the whole BC cube of effects um, management framework was piloted in the Elk Valley. And through a number of different uh, stakeholders and, you know, these fancy modeling techniques and uh, industry partners and indigenous partners and experts, we spent years developing this framework. And there was a number of, uh, they're, they're called valued components. So they're basically the things that you care about. And then you see what changes them and what we should be looking forward to make them better. So the valued components were bighorn sheep, of course, um, west slope cutthroat trout, grizzly bears, and old growth forests. So, you know, a pretty dynamic and comprehensive uh, group of species and indicators that represent what's special in the valley. And the number one recommendation from that was to reduce road density. So this came out maybe in 2019. And it's been endorsed by a number of groups, including Tanaha First Nation and government partners were a part of it. And it was kind of like, okay, we all sat in these, you know, hundreds of hours of meetings and this, you know, pretty well-funded project. But, you know, here we are in 2022 and we don't have drastically fewer roads, if any, in the Elk Valley after all of that process. I mean, their government is slowly working on reducing some roads. We're talking about like 15 to 20 kilometers a year. And it's mostly roads that nobody's driving. So whether that has an effect on wildlife is kind of unknown. It They might have been wildlife habitat for all we know because they're grass and nobody's driving them. And it might be a great spot for a elk to walk down. And the roads that are going to have an effect are the ones that people are driving on and are hard to close, to be fair to the government, that the people get quite upset because they, they've accessed every drainage at some point in their life. And some drainages are really important to people. Their, their grandpa took them up there and they're culturally important. So, you know, we're not, we've done all that science and we did all these reports and I, nothing drastic is changing. And, it, and it's because a lot of people don't want to see the access reduced on the landscape. So, it, you know, another example of where the science and all the sort of efforts don't go all that far when the people don't really want to see it happen. And, and I think the pendulum would swing the other way. Like if we can uh, help the public and, and the, you know, vocal folks understand why this would be important. And they said, let's do this. It would get done. So, you know, again, there's sort of this middle group that does sort of give the yay or nay at times on what's viable and what should be done on the landscape. And that's sometimes out of my and government biologist control. Yeah, that's a really good point, Clayton. And let's let's pivot to that now. Let's talk about uh, bighorns and 
you know, the Kootenays. And, you know, for our members and listeners, we had this issue around Region 4 LEH, and the government came out and said, okay. So first of all, a little bit, bit of backstory there. There was a bighorn management plan that was conducted uh, uh, recently. It was very comprehensive, a multi-faceted document, 90-plus pages, um, really well done, that laid out all these issues in the, in the, uh, in the Kootenays in Region 4 uh, for bighorn sheep. Um, and so now pivot to 2021 and the government says, okay, there's dwindling bighorn sheep populations and we're going to put sheep on LEH because we think if we reduce numbers, um, which we didn't, you know, argue with them, like, okay, if we're harvesting too many sheep, that's an issue. Fair enough. But the issue that we had was it came to this, um, single lever thing where it was like, okay, we've got an issue and we're just going to stop or reduce hunting and not do anything else. So, um, you know, one of the things that we really have, we obviously want to do what's right for the resource. So that's where, you know, if there's a compelling argument for LEH, okay, that's, that's legitimate. That's good enough. But you know, what are we going to do to restore these animals? Right. Um, and you know, one of the questions I asked the regional biologists and, um, you know, the government was, you know, if we just stop hunting altogether, or, you know, we put them on LEH, whatever the case may be, is this going to fix wild sheep in the Kootenays? And the answer was, well, probably not. So, you know, here we are back to looking at LEH and there's no other solution. So, you know, uh, I guess let's talk about region four and, and what can we do there? What's, you know, access management roads. That's the biggest one I think you mentioned. Um, but what do we really need to be doing there? What's the real issue that we need to be looking at? I think that all the evidence points towards the the region four bighorn sheep. Their habitat is declining for a number of reasons. Uh, the main ones are a lack of fire on the landscape, maintaining fire on the landscape, and overgrazing, especially in the Elk Valley, kind of in the in the 80s and 90s by a pretty abundant population of elk and sheep. So those high elevation grasslands are, are degraded and they're not being recovered because there's no fire on the landscape. So there's no um, expansion of the habitat and no recovery of the habitat. And at least in the Elk Valley, there's of course another challenge in that some of those high elevation grasslands are, are under threat from, uh, from mountaintop removal mining. And that is both sort of a, a challenge for those sheep and then, you know, it does provide some habitat at times during uh, some portions of the year that are outside the winter as well. But, you know, we, I think we know what we need to do for those sheep. I mean, uh, increasing the role of fire on a landscape would do a lot for those sheep. And especially given that the places we want to burn are often above sort of the marketable timber line and accessible timber line as well. And then for some of these sheep uh, collisions with, uh, with vehicles is a big uh, source of mortality. Sheep, as I think we all know, are uh, this weird species that are this a symbol of, of wilderness and, you know, a monarch of the wild. And then in the same breath, they're sort of like garbage bears at times, you know, I, and I, I deal with this with grizzly bears too, where they're this really wild, uh, you know, um, symbolic species but then they're like in your backyard chewing on your bird feeder and it's like is this the same thing that we you know that is the symbol of wild and sheep are kind of like that i mean they they're standing on top of an excavator on site uh, at on a coal mine 
at, with no not a shred of grass around it's like don't don't you have any dignity like you should be up in the hills you know so they uh they're this unique creature that then also stands in the middle of a highway and licks salt off the highway and lives in town and on golf courses which a goat would never do. I mean, we have very few sort of those domestic habituated goats. There's, there's small examples where they'll, you know, go to uh, lick urine around a campsite or something, but we really don't see goats habituating the people like we see sheep. And, um, you know, of course, because the, the goat is a nobler species, which I would never say to you guys, but um, you, you know, the, the challenge with those sheep is that they they are around people a lot, and that does create some pretty unique challenges, especially in the winter range. So, uh, radium's a good example. There's a a herd right now of about 140 sheep there that are experiencing upwards of 10% mortality just from collisions alone, which is completely unsustainable for those sheep. And then uh, sheep are also pretty susceptible to disease, as we know. Uh, both from domestic sheep and then just naturally. My my girlfriend is a, a vet and she was always taught in vet school that once domestic sheep get sick, I mean, it's a it's a big job to bring them back. They like to sort of just flip over. And so they are a sensitive species when they get sick and can have incredibly huge die-off. So, you know, as I say, we know what we need to do for these sheep. We need to... Uh, improve their habitat and not let it continually degrade. I mean, we're not looking for uh, expansion of habitat. We're not trying to, you know, change what was already there. I think we're just trying to make sure that we don't lose what was once great bighorn habitat in the Kootenays. And uh, the report that you spoke to, it says all these things right in the executive summary. It's, a, it's the Kootenay Management Plan. And, and it says that the things that are affecting these sheep are uh, habitat loss, uh, collisions and disease. And then at the end of the executive summary, it says hunting is not expected to do, or I guess hunting regulations is not expected to uh, increase the viability of these populations. And so I think that kind of speaks for itself that that's not what's going to save these sheep. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's the, 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 you know, the challenging part for us. So, you know, but when we talk to wildlife managers, they say to us, well, there's nothing, we, we have one lever we can pull. And uh, as a manager, right? Um, so you know this highway mortality issue is a, a Modi issue, right? It's it's a different uh, ma- uh, ministry. Um, disease is a different ministry. Um, habitat loss is industry. It's an- another industry. So you know, and I guess that's where it comes back to that political will. You really have to influence it at a, at a uh, you know kind of at the political level to get provi- provincial buy-in to actually have the will to change these other ministries to address these issues. Um, because Flinro doesn't really have the capacity to to look after these the wildlife, right? You're exactly right. It, it it's sort of this uh, the two groups pointing at each other, like these are your sheep, but oh, this is your highway, and it's like, and they both just point at each other, and then it's it's hard to know whose jurisdiction it is. And and I think, I mean, the biologists aren't wrong in that that the way the system is set up is that's one of the only levers they have, and. And the folks that look after wildlife in BC from the Flunrow side, I mean, these are folks that really care about wildlife and, and got into it because they want to do a good thing and look after wildlife in BC. And I think uh, I think a lot of them are frustrated with the system that they're in as well, that they can't do more, that they don't have the ability to just 
you know, sign an order and build an overpass or, you know, just put a polygon on the landscape and next year it gets burned. I mean, there's everything's so siloed in that, you know, they'd have to work with the highway ministry to do that. And there's other priorities, um, you know, and they'd have to work with uh, range and agriculture and all these different groups that don't always have sheep or bears or caribou at the front of their mind. And so it is kind of a challenge with the system that, that we have set up. And I think it, it always comes back to the people that if, if the people care about wildlife and they made it known, then that would raise to a higher priority. Well, it's interesting. CBC did an, an article recently and, and uh, you were featured in it and, and we're talking about this mortality issue on the highway. Um, you know, if we could pull it off and we built a, you know, wildlife overpass, is that going to be the, you know, is that going to solve a lot of problems if we put a single overpass in or is it a, you know, do we need multiple overpasses? You know, what does it look like? We see in other jurisdictions where it's been pretty successful. Um, is that a solution in the Kootenays Forest that that would actually work? I, th- I think in radium especially, it's a it's a, a viable solution because the area that those sheep are getting hit is an incredibly uh, small area. It's a little collision hotspot. It's basically the hill entering radium from the south. And it's a couple kilometer stretch that you ca- we'd sort of need to fence off and build an overpass. I mean, you could theoretically uh, just fence it, but without the overpass, we don't want to cut off the connectivity of those sheep. And they'd probably just find a way into that fence if we excluded them solely from it. So what, what we'd want to do is, is fence it, secure those ends, um, and provide jump out. So basically there's ways that if they did get inside the fence, they can jump out through a one directional kind of jump and then build an overpass. And I mean, we build infrastructure across Western North America at a high rate. I mean, we, we pour a lot of concrete in on this side of the world, on this continent. And I mean, we should start pouring it for wildlife, especially given the degree to which we take habitat away doing that. And I think the, the work from Banff and and actually a lot of the the Western states now really show us that overpasses and fencing work. They reduce wildlife collisions over eighty five percent and can be over ninety five percent for uh, ungulates, so like your deer and your elk and your sheep. And the you know the ones that do get through are like coyotes and things that still you can never keep them out. They're a they're a wily, pretty smart creature, but. You know, the animals that we're thinking about, the ungulates, they they can't get into that fence and they go over the overpasses and underpasses and learn to use that landscape. And these animals are are well tuned to doing that. I mean, I I, I hear folks, um, they basically get concerned about, uh, say, reducing the connectivity in some ways because now the animals can't freely cross. But at least here in the Rockies, I mean, I think about the giant walls of rock that we have in every direction and these little passes that go through between drainages. I mean, these animals, they're used to that. They're used to five, 10 kilometer stretches that are unpassable. And then they go through a a narrow mountain pass that has a, you know, a trail beat into it over decades. And in this case, you know, we don't really want crossings to be more than a kilometer or two from one another. We want one every couple of kilometers, but um, on the radium side, I think we could just do a couple kilometers of fencing and an overpass and get those sheep to be able to move freely around their winter range. So that's one of the features of where the highway is. is it cuts right through a grassland that's a steep, uh, low elevation winter range for those sheep. So kind of want to connect both sides, allow them 
access to water and then their higher elevation uh, ranges and and keep them off the highway and, and separate them from the vehicles and and try to find a situation where uh, it's obviously not good for the sheep to be hit, but it's not good for people either. I mean, damage to your your grill and your radiator and upsetting your trip is uh, that's not helping people and the flow of goods either. So I, I, I do think that this sort of road ecology uh, work is is poised to to create these win-win situations where governments might be keen to invest because it does good things for wildlife and for people. Interesting. Yeah. So my understanding, I think from that article, there was 15 bighorn sheep killed in 21 in that radium section there. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there there was at least 13 and then there was a number that were hit and then were never recovered. And then there was another four or so that were killed by liver flukes. So uh, again, one of these things where it's it's a cumulative effect and sort of death by a thousand cuts that anything north of 10 sheep dying in that herd is a lot of sheep in, in 140 sheep. And when we're seeing somewhat uh, north of maybe 20 sheep killed a year, I mean, that's a that's a number of sheep that are, are dying. And given that the greatest fraction is is because of collisions, it's, it's certainly something we want to we want to put our mind to solving. And and as we talked about, it, it's something we've been thinking about for a long time. There was an article from 1993 in the Invermere paper, and it it reads exactly like an article you could write today. It has a picture of sheep on the highway licking salt, and it says that these sheep are dying at high rates, and it's something we need to solve. And I mean, it it's a bit discouraging to be honest that we're sort of the wheel goes around and we're not doing making a lot of action. But I I am encouraged that. I, I think the the role of uh, Ministry of Transport and Infrastructure in conserving wildlife is increasing. I mean, I, I think the the culture in the agency is is certainly shifting their eye towards uh, doing better by these wildlife, and and I, I think we'll see something uh, change there in in the near future. I'm at least probably a lot more optimistic than the folks were in '93. Yeah, so that that's the thing we were talking about. That that article was close to thirty years old. That um, you know, I, I'm not sure if you shared it or whatever, but we've seen that article, and it's just you know incredible. Thirty years later, and we lose fifteen sheep in a year, or whatever the number, maybe fourteen or whatever you mentioned. So it's significant, and uh, it's really disheartening. And here we're faffing around with wildlife regulations, which we know is not going to solve the issue. And we're not even talking, well, we are talking today about it, but we're not talking enough about, you know, doing more on the landscape that we actually know could um, affect these these sheep populations and help them, right? Well, that's that's just it. I mean, there's there's almost as many sheep dying in that couple kilometers as in the entire Elk Valley harvest. And of course, the sheep that die on the highway also include ewes and, you know, pregnant animals and uh, uh, lambs and then, you know, young rams. And so the, the actual per capita hit of those, uh, those deaths are, are harder on the population than harvesting those mature rams that, you know, at least in BC with our full curl rule should have already done some substantial level of breeding. And, and there should be a lot of rams still on the landscape based on that rule. So yeah, I, I do find that frustrating that we we turn our attention and our effort to something that you know is not really well supported by by hunters and isn't well supported that it will help sheep. While on you know out the other side of our eye, there's there's sheep dying and we could we could do something to to help them and and also the you know a sheep dead on the highway is is 
fundamentally wasted. I mean, it's not eaten. Nothing good comes from that sheep's death for people or for that sheep. I mean, that sheep is just sort of put into a gravel pit, basically. And somebody's radiator is blown out. And obviously, somebody hunting a sheep is a very different thing. Of course, a sheep still dies. So that's, you know, maybe not great for that sheep per se. But it, you know, that is a, an experience for, for people, somebody that values being on the land, there might be, you might be taking a kid out hunting, and it's, you know, it's time out on the land, uh, you know, connecting with it and understanding sheep and maybe bringing some food home for your family and getting some exercise. So I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's obvious where we should be putting our attention is probably not uh, at the, you know, at the full curl regulation, especially given that the report said that wasn't going to do very much for these sheep. Yeah, very well said, Clayton. Um, yeah, yeah, really good points there, and uh, really, really, uh, yeah, really frustrating, you know. And uh, um, you know, there's a hundred things we can talk about today, and <laughs> um, I think uh, I think we'll probably end it there. And, and actually, we're going to get you back on the show because there's a whole bunch of other stuff I want to talk about. But I know it's going to be another half hour discussion on this, so I think I think we end it there. And you know, I think we got to ask ourselves you know, what can we really do to help these region four sheep? Like, what's the real issue here? And, you know, what do we need to do as the Wild Sheep Society BC? And, you know, hearing from you, you know, this, this is one of the issues. So, you know, is this something we need to push more and um, hold the government accountable to and, and try and actually make some effective changes that are going to help these these wild sheep, not just, you know, a sort of Band-Aid that's not going to really, it's not going to solve the problem. And it really, you know, maybe stops the bleeding temporarily. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's not going to fix the issue. So, um, I'm going to be respectful of your time today, Clayton, and I, I really appreciate uh, you, you diving into this and and for being so candid, right? Like, you know, these are some pretty emotive issues and um, some some challenging issues, and I love the way you're tackling them. So thank you very much for coming on today. And, and uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm hoping we can get back together because there's a whole bunch of things I want to talk about, but uh, I just know we can't cover them in a timely manner here today. So Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was great chatting with you guys today. Thank you.